you know, they're everyday people like you and I, um, professional standing, and they're just something happens that usually tips them over the edge and they make a very bad decision and that's it. Then they kind of, it's, it's a wake-up call for a lot of people. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. Today's episode, I have Carla Ferrari, who's a forensic psychologist based in Melbourne. We talk about what it is to do forensic work in the different aspects, whether it be forensic cases around criminal cases, violent offenders, drug crimes, whether it be family issues or difficulties or immigration and sort of refugee cases. Carla has a wealth of experience and shares much of that with us today on this episode, but it's also fascinating to hear about how she weighs up uh, making an opinion in some of these really complex cases. Please remember to also go onto iTunes and put a review if you'd like to hear more of this this content. It certainly helps us with getting our uh, viewer viewership up. So thanks very much for that. Carla, I really appreciate you coming onto the show to talk about your experiences as a forensic psych. Uh, so big big welcome and thank you. Thank you, Nash. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Very exciting. Now, tell me a little bit about, obviously, the, the the reason to have you on as one of our guests is this forensic psych world. I think it's always an exciting topic, certainly for, for me. It's not a space that I work in, so I know it's very specialist, you know, psychologists, Generally, if we look at the, the the large portion of psychologists work in the therapeutic context of doing mm-hmm. counselling, um, and obviously your world's a little bit different, you know, a little bit probably, different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe you could just start with a little bit about um, uh, even how you got into it, and then we can maybe just discuss some of the cases, the things that you find interesting. Um, yeah. I know that obviously there's an overrepresentation, you know, at least in the, from a criminal sort of perspective around. Mm-hmm drugs and and the like so I'm sure we'll cover lots yes definitely um and first of all I'll take my hat off to everyone who does counseling normal therapy um I, I couldn't do it I find you know this stuff kind of this is my every day um but I take my hat off to everyone who does the therapy because I find it so so draining um and it takes a lot of work and a lot of um just energy so Congratulations to all of you. Let me jump in. Um, let me jump in. What, what do you find yeah. draining? What do you find draining on the on the counselling front? Oh, I think just you know the volume of clients that you have coming through all the time. I know I, you know a lot of my colleagues that do the clinical psych work. Um, you know they'll see six, seven, eight, nine clients a day, and I just think, oh my goodness, I couldn't, I couldn't focus for that long. <laughs> it's funny because because all of us are uh, uh, psychs doing the counselling side, we're like, oh, it's so draining doing all the reports. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true as well. People often do say to me, how do you sit at a computer, you know, probably 60 to 70% of your day just writing? And I guess it's just different people, you know, they, they do different things and, yeah. So um, I guess in terms of my background and how I got into forensic psych, it kind of was a bit of an accident, I suppose. Um, I started off wanting to go into, well, started off doing um, 
a mixture of law and psychology and then decided I really didn't want to pursue the law side of things because it was very dry. Loved criminal psych, but not so much torts or um, corporate law or anything else. So I then decided to go down the psychology path, um, had enjoyed a lot of those subjects and with my forensic master's, I guess, I only went into that because it was offered a whole semester earlier than the clinical stream. And I thought, I can I can do this early. I can get a few of the crossover subjects um, done and then jump over onto the clinical stream. And, of course, the year that I started my master's was the year that they stopped doing a bridging program. So I ended up in the forensic stream and um, just, yeah, stayed in it. It was the perfect, I guess, intersect between law and psych. So that's kind of where where I kind of got into it and um, worked for a long time as well um, in the clinical setting in a hospital um, and then some private practice doing therapy and, you know, as well as doing the forensic stuff. So I kind of had a bit of a varied um, background, but forensic is definitely you know, where my, my interest lies, I, I suppose. Lovely, lovely. And who, who comes to see a forensic psych and why? That's a good question. So um, a little bit different to you guys. Most of my referrals come from lawyers and barristers um, and occasionally you'll get a self-referral, but it's from, you know, they've been recommended by their lawyer or they know that they're going to need a psych report for court. Um, so it can be there's a, a lot of different cases, I suppose, that, you know, you'll end up seeing a forensic psych. It can be for criminal law matters, um, can be for family court matters, so usually parenting, custody issues, etc. cetera. Um, immigration, detention, asylum seekers um, that, you know, are needing reports done. We do a lot of institutional abuse cases and victims of crime. Um, and then you've got your personal injury type stuff as well. So there's quite a broad spectrum of um, reasons for seeing a forensic psych. But usually the the issue is they need a report done about their psychological health at that time or at the time of the offending, um, if we're looking at criminal matters. And, and it's generally to do a you know one-off assessment, so to speak, to then prepare a report for their legal representation. So there's usually some questions that come with the referral in terms of, you know, this is the matter, this is what um, uh, I suppose all the documents uh, around the matter are. Are you sort of privy to all of those or are you sort of asked asked a, a question that's a bit broader than that? Um. Look, it can work both ways, but generally um, you'll get a, a letter of instruction from their their lawyer or their barrister and they're looking at a particular um, matter or a number of matters. Um, say, for example, in criminal cases, it's usually um, questions around their mental health proceeding during and after the offending, um, what their risk of re-offending is, whether there's any... Um, kind of issues that would prevent them from being fit to stand trial, mental impairment at the time of offending, which might actually um, lessen their culpability, I suppose, the criminal responsibility. Um, and then you've got, you know, say, 
in personal injury cases or institutional abuse cases, how much of what they've been through, say an accident or some form of abuse, etc., um, has contributed to their psychological condition at the moment. How has it affected their life in different areas? So it could be, you know, social, personal, occupational relationships. Has it prevented them from being able to, <coughs> sorry, complete their education? Those sort of things. So there is usually, yes, a letter of instruction that comes with it, a number of questions, um, and it can take different forms and, and different processes depending, obviously, on what area of law you're you're working in at that for that particular matter and what specifically they're looking for. Sometimes it might even just be that the judge has ordered a risk assessment be done because it's a specialised type of um, offending case. So it might be um, like a stalking case or it might be a violent or a sexual crime that they're looking at what is their actual risk of offending if they are allowed back out into the community or you know, down the track once they're released. How do you go about measuring, for example, you know, uh, someone's state of mind or where they're at, you know, pre, let's say, an offence? I I can imagine if I'm a barrister, um, you know, I want to go out and represent, let's say I'm I'm the defendant's barrister, I want to represent that my client was, you know, had impeded judgment and all this sort of good good stuff to to help my case, right? Um, how how do I and you know I'm, I want to sort of instruct you to to look at that, um, you know how how do you go about factors that 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 tell you or you know is it a probability sort of basis, you know because. If I'm now the client, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say, oh, I tell you what, life was terrible. You know, my, my, everything was going crazy for me and I, I didn't know up from down and, you know, and uh, life was terrible. And, and you know, how, how do you go about assessing those things mm. to make a judgment? I think it's, it's, very, it's very difficult um, and it's very subjective, I suppose, obviously. There are a number of documents that you rely upon besides the client's self-report. Um, so you might look subjective at subjective or objective. Sorry, objective. Sorry. Objective. Yes, yes. Um, okay. No, I did say subjective. Um, but so there are a number of documents, I suppose, that you rely on um, in terms of you know you don't just want to rely on the person's self-report because exactly as you're saying, I can make up whatever I mm. want to make up. I can present myself however I want to. And so there's always an element, I suppose, of impression management that you're looking for, malingering, we call it, um, and always in the back of your mind, obviously, you know, predominantly the work is of a defence nature. So they are going to be looking for something um, to help their client's case. But in saying that, you know, you can you can always obtain collateral from other people, family, friends, etc., um, their doctors, treating team, um, get a lot of collateral documentation from the police as to um, the actual offence, what happened. Um, usually if there's a question over, say, mental impairment or their fitness to stand trial, 
um, the the lawyer or barrister that's instructing you would come to you with concerns and kind of say, I had one last week actually, um, and the the lawyer said, you know, the first time I met him, just very very disorganised, um, talking about a lot of kind of things that didn't make a lot of sense, all over the place, very very anxious. Um, talking about kind of quite delusional content um, and so she said I, I don't know if he's actually with it enough to understand the legal proceedings to follow you know the course of um, his matters to be able to instruct me um, and so in that case you know I had to go and interview him obviously this was probably about a month after she'd initially seen him by the time he'd then been processed, because that was when, when he was first remanded into custody, um, by the time I then saw him three, four weeks later, he'd been put on his medication again in custody, completely different presentation to what she um, had witnessed. And a few things actually came out in that interview that we found out he was so lucid that one of the offences that he'd been remanded for, the, the primary one he'd been remanded for because there were two matters, um, was actually his twin brother. And I went back to the lawyer and I mentioned it and she said, he never explained he had a brother, he never explained he had a twin. So obviously she went and did a bit of investigative work, checked with the police, etc. and it turned out to be true, but very different kind of presentation, I suppose, between what she saw at the beginning and what I saw at the time of assessment. So there can be rapid changes as well, which obviously, obviously influence um, that. And it's all about in that case, you know, you do need that collateral. You can't go on what someone's saying because they could be making up or they could be very unwell. Who's, who knows which brother you saw? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> but given they were in custody, you'd, you'd hope they got it right. <laughs> The issue was they had extremely similar, obviously same last name, but they had a very similar first name as well and obviously the same date of birth being twins. So it was extremely difficult and nobody had picked it up. So it, it can help to get a psych report. Sometimes you learn things, lawyers and barristers, if you're listening, sometimes you learn <laughs> things about your clients that you really had no idea about. <laughs> That there's actually two, you now have two clients. Correct. You're trying to get, a, I suppose, a battery of tests. You're looking from, you know, a, a number of different perspectives, uh, whether it be, you know, one part might be self-report, but there's many other places, whether there's another treating uh, professional, whether there's a GP, uh, whether there's any... Um, prior information that the person brings, you know, family members, friends. Uh, and is that all part of your assessment in terms of you kind of read the case and then you kind of say to the lawyer or I suppose to your client, um, I'm going to need to speak with all these other people. Do you give me consent? Is that, is that how it works? Exactly. And I mean, look, in a perfect world, you have the time to go and get all that collateral that you want. Unfortunately, particularly, you know, in the criminal law world, there's not always that, um, you know, capacity. Um, 
you've got a deadline, court's happening, regardless of whether you're ready or not, you have to have the report prepared. And often there are filing rules where you have to file it one week, two weeks, four weeks before. Um, And so sometimes it can take a lawyer that much time to actually obtain, say, you know, the freedom of information material that I need from their health records. So in a perfect world, yes, you would get all of that collateral information, but a lot of the time it's not possible. And so you very much do have to go on what you've got, um, you know, the presentation in front of you, plus obviously their interactions with their lawyer, with their barrister, um, police material, any evidence that, you know, has been compiled against them. And it's, it's a matter of, you know, doing your best. Um at the time and I guess another big part of it is psychometric testing to look at is there any um, yeah, impression management or malingering going on and just to kind of back up and support you know any clinical diagnosis you are making or any assumptions that you are making because obviously in forensics there's a high chance you're going to get called into court to, to give you know expert testimony on your report for the case. And what sort of uh, psychometrics do you use? Uh, I'll just put it over to you. I'm assuming there's a PAI in there somewhere, but uh, that's probably as far as I I can go. (laughs) So obviously it depends on the case and on, um, you know, what the specific referral questions are. Um, Obviously common use, you know, your DAS, your BDI, your BAI. but then your um, personality inventory. So you mentioned the PAI. I tend to use the MCMI. Sure. Um, but certainly, you know, a, a personality measure of some sort. And then if there's specific things, so say with um, a violent assessment, um, a violent case, we might use a risk assessment such as the HCR20, which is a violent risk um, measurement tool. For sexual offences, we might use an SCR20, um, RSCT, static 99, there's lots you can use. Um, But so it very much depends on the specific um, case that you're working on. And I know that all these things are normed and they're validated and the like. From your experience in obviously using them all, all the time, how solid are they? What do you think? Look, obviously, you've got your research base, which does say that, you know, they're highly reliable, valid, et cetera, but everything has its its um, limitations. And I think it's just it's about acknowledging those limitations in your report. Nothing's ever 100% accurate. You cannot, um, you know, with foolproof um, accuracy, say that someone is or isn't going to reoffend. There are a number of, you know, other factors that, that you must take into account um, and certainly I guess you know I've seen some some people do give percentages and that sort of thing and I think it can be quite quite dangerous wow. um, yeah to to offer that um, you know but obviously there is there is a research base for that as well um, but Barristers would have a field day with percentages wouldn't they and that's why I don't do it <laughs> Um, because, yeah, you, you end up in court being questioned over it. And, look, at the end of the day, it's um, it's a battlefield in there anyway. Um, but the prosecution is obviously trying to get their 
spider cross, which means discrediting or questioning you on your report. Um, so I think it's 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 best to err on the side err on the side of caution um, and just acknowledge that nothing's ever a hundred percent accurate, and you have to take into account that um, people's mental health, environmental factors, etc., do um, also contribute to those risk tools, and that's why it's also you know clinical judgment based as well. You can't just rely on a psychometric tool. And what what are some of the factors that you would look at, or the the, the measures uh, try and I suppose tease out in terms of risk? You know, risk of reoffending. What what are we looking mm. at? Because it's um, such a hard so, question. You know, like it's it's kind of like what's the likelihood that this person is going to go back into the community and exactly. drink drive, or you know be physically violent towards their partner again, or um, yeah. you know threaten police or something you know like like mm. how do we how do you, how, what are the things that you look at because it's fascinating it is it is um and obviously on any given day you know some of those factors can change um so there are what we call static factors which don't change which are you know things like your gender um your criminal history etc but then you've got dynamic factors which are you know, the things that can change. So drug use, support systems, um, mental health, uh, medication, whether they have a criminal attitude or not and is that amenable to treatment. Um, you know, so accommodation, employment, they're big things. They can change in an instant as we kind of are, are seeing in the current climate. So there's a number of factors that I guess you do have to look at and certainly specific crimes, because I guess we're talking more about risk in terms of criminal law, um, there are specific crimes that obviously you would look at particular factors. So violent violent offences, do they have a history of violence? Do they use weapons in their offences? Um, you know, what's their attitude like? What you know, do they have a history of um fighting, armed robbery, is there an escalation in their offending, etc. Sexual offences, do they have um you know, do they have a history of any sexual offending? Uh is there any sexual deviation? Are there you know, were they a victim of childhood sexual abuse themselves? So there's a, a range of different factors depending on each particular case that you're looking at that have to be taken into consideration. So there's always your general um, risk factors, but then there's the specialised ones as well. You mentioned criminal attitude. What do you mean about that? Um, So I guess we, we look at people and kind of, do they have a string of kind of um, offending, a pattern of offending in which it's, it kind of looks like they have a very antisocial tendency. Do they have an antisocial personality? Are there peers that they, you know, spend most of their time with? Are they also involved in criminal behaviour? Because that's generally going to then tell you a lot about a person's mindset and, you know, their attitude and belief system, whether that's okay or not. So it's it's a bit of a feel that you kind of get or, or an understanding of, of a lifestyle that someone might 
might live. And and obviously, if we kind of say, I don't know, they're uh, with our stereotyping, but uh, oh no, it's not stereotyping. It's just, just calling out the, uh, the 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 dynamic factors. If they if they don't have a home or if they um, don't have regular employment, it, it it means that there's lots of variability in their day um, and impulsivity yeah, exactly. might start, start showing up. Boredom might start showing up. Correct. Um, you know, there's big questions about well, what do you do for for you know putting a roof over your head or what do you do, you know, for living because you need to eat food, you know, how do you live, how do you survive, you know, and, and mm. you've either got to be fairly Are you interested in working? Yeah. That's another one. Yeah. Uh, or no, I'm happy to spend my time kicking back with my friends and using drugs. Um, and, you know, I have had clients who will be very honest and raw with me and say I don't see my life changing, um, you know, all of my friends. We're all involved in it. This is our life. The drug scene, you know, which then leads to not always, but, um, you know, then we need to offend to fund our drug habit. I just don't see myself changing and, you know, it's, it's sad. Um, mm. I mean, it's pre-contemplative, so really they're, 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 there's no motivating factor there. The motivating factor in actual fact is to maintain social networks at that point, you know, that they're, they're going to live their lifestyle. Um, and not, certainly nothing wrong, wrong with that. It just doesn't go in line with, you know, community expectations and no, Exactly. And they'll probably continue to find themselves in that cycle of drug abuse and offending. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to kind of look at those risk factors and people's attitude to them because, you know, exactly like I said, some people, they just, they're not interested in working or they're happy. Some people choose. I had, you know, one particular client as well that comes to mind very well-known case in Victoria, I won't, you know, obviously identify, but chose a life of itinerance and homelessness um, and drug use because it was comfortable to him. And obviously there were other factors behind that. Um, but certainly he he had the means available to him to live in a normal house and to go and, you know, do some community work and so forth, but just chose the other path because it was what was comfortable to him. Mm. Mm. So about people's motivation, I guess, and drive and, yeah. yeah. And understanding it because, you know, we, we could go out and say that someone's quite desperate, you know, in, in, in this space and there might be, you know, other health issues, mental health issues versus someone who's, you know, quite sound of mind and, and kind of actively making a choice to have a particular lifestyle that, you know, we need to appreciate and understand rather than place judgment on. Mm, absolutely, definitely. Uh, another big risk factor is um, obviously mental health comes into it, but what's their attitude towards intervention? What's their attitude towards treatment? Are they willing to remain on medication, um, whether it's for health issues or mental health issues, because that can all play factors as well. Yeah. How, how um, prevalent, at least in the criminal side, on the criminal matters that you um, have, have experienced, how prevalent is, is drugs? Um, I hate to say it, but it's probably, I would estimate probably seven out of my 10 cases are drug related. Um, and I'd guess, you know, more so than that, uh, 
just there's a history of alcohol and substance use involved, not necessarily the actual crime, but certainly a higher proportion of you know people with substance use issues. But I would say definitely um, 70 to 80%, I would say, are drug-related crimes. And when I say drug-related, not necessarily just your possession, trafficking, cultivation type crime, but, you know, with crime also then um, comes, well, I need to fund my habit. So that generally lends itself to theft offences, dishonesty, um, deception charges, uh, firearms, weapons. So it can kind of play out in a much broader sense rather than just being, you know, you think of a drug crime or they must be done for trafficking or something. Um, so there's a lot more to it and generally a lot more acquisitive crime. And is is that where psychologists really comes uh, becomes an important cog in the wheel of being able to try and understand where someone was at at the time of the, the offence, if someone was intoxicated at the time? Yeah, or, or I think... Or in a lifetime where, you know, um, you know, drug and alcohol use is, is prevalent and regular. Hmm. I think, um, obviously, all different cases, there is um, there is a role for, for psychologists depending on the, the circumstances, but certainly in those drug cases, it's... Um, it is very hard to tease out, you know, the the level of impairment, I suppose, at the time of offending. Um, but, you know, blanket rule, if someone is intoxicated on methamphetamine or something, generally they are going to be quite impaired. Sure. Um, however, I suppose then it becomes more of an issue around, well, do the courts necessarily see substance use as a mitigating factor by itself, no. But as we know as psychologists, very rarely are people using substances simply because they enjoy the feeling. I mean, yes, that's part of it. And sure, there are people that are that way, but generally there is an underlying issue, whether there's been a major event, whether there's a trauma, whether there is um, other mental health issues that say they're self-medicating. Perhaps I see a lot of um, a lot of ADHD, a lot of PTSD in the prison system. Um, so a lot of the time, people are using their alcohol and drugs to self-medicate that, and that's what then generally contributes to the offending as well. So it kind of is a, a number of different things to look at rather than just that substance use. It's, it's kind of tricky because we, we go out and I suppose in society, and please jump in and correct me wherever I get this wrong, but there's this appreciation that if I go out and get intoxicated and I jump in a car and I drive it, uh, we go and say, well, you being intoxicated is not a mitigating factor, even though your judgment was clearly impaired. Right? Hmm. Uh, but there's a deeper question which goes out and says, well, when, when is it considered a mitigating factor and when's it not, you know, and, and because it's really hard to go out and say, well, maybe I'm deliberately going out and I'm, 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 I'm in actual fact cognizant and I'm mm. deliberately choosing to drive while intoxicated because uh, that, that's how I love, you know, I live my life or I might go out and actually be so intoxicated I didn't know that night. 
Um, Correct. And it's, it's this really hard space. And then I suppose we've got this space around, you know, is, is it abuse? Uh, and is it abuse at the level of it's uh, considered a um, mental illness, at least in the DSM, or is it dependence? How do we go out and, and measure that? And if it does meet that criteria, does does the um, does the court even care? Uh, does it take that or does it say, we don't really give a stuff what you call it, whether it's a mm-hmm. dependence, you know, it, this isn't a mitigating factor. We're not going to tolerate that. I mean, how's it, how does that all work? I mean, because I know if, I'll tell you what, if, if I were to get charged for something, because I am, and I'm going to put it air quotes here, no one will see this unless you're watching on YouTube, but if I'm an upstanding sort of uh, figure, you know, I'm doing all the right things that I should be in the community, uh, and I, you know, drink, drive, they'll throw the book at me, right? Or at least I'm assuming, especially in that in that instance. But if I've got a long history, I might, I mean, I don't know, maybe, I, maybe I've got this wrong. Maybe I don't understand the legal system, but... Sometimes I might get more leniency if my world is chaotic um, rather than if it's, uh, uh, you know, um, a, 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 if there's no reason for it. It's just a yeah. poor judgment. You had a bad day. Let's just call it that. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of things, you know, in what you just said, certainly um, it, it can go either way and that's, that's the arbitrary thing, I suppose, that, you know, you do see people who have this long, long history of similar offending that nothing seems to work. They're not getting it. They're not learning from whatever, you know, sentence they are getting. They're not necessarily being rehabilitated either. Um, and then you've got the other side of things where, like you said, you know, an upstanding citizen gets the book thrown at them because they should know better or they're in a position of, you know, professional or or whatever the case may be um but I think with everything you really need to look at what are the underlying factors and what was happening say on that particular day that you decided to go out and drink drive net what was going on for you that day or what was happening in the the three months beforehand had there been some significant stresses that maybe was a gradual kind of decline in your decision-making process rather than necessarily, you know, that particular day might have just been the straw that broke the camel's back. But it's about kind of investigating, I suppose, what was going on in the lead-up to it. It's not just, you know, at that time of the offence. It's everything leading up to it. It's your history, etc. So there's a number of different um areas that you kind of really have to look at in order to understand and provide that full picture um and I guess in the case of you know someone who's been doing it a long time the question of you know is it is it really a mitigating factor well as I said before unless someone you know has underlying issues substance use alone generally isn't seen as a mitigating factor so there needs to be some pretty good um, overwhelming reasons that that should be taken to be a contributor, contributory factor to the offending in order for it to even kind of have any weight, I suppose. That's interesting, um, isn't it? Yeah. Mm, and unfortunately, you know, I often say this too, I say at the end of the day, all you can do when you're a 
forensic psychologist, when you're, you know, the lawyer or barrister preparing the cases, they're doing their best to collate as much information to provide to the judge who ultimately makes the decision. And that's also, I guess, the reason why there are minimum sentences involved um, for a number of different offences, you know, that we we have to accept that, like you said, it's your choice at the end of the day to get in that car and drive. So there is a level of inherent responsibility on your part unless you're completely off with the fairies and had no idea what you were doing because of a mental impairment or um, something and it can't. It can't just be that you were impaired because of substances on that day. It has to be deeper than that. So, you know, it might be cognitive issues. It might be um, a medical condition, etc. It's fascinating. Look, I don't. I don't think that the. Uh the, the courts would do it in that exact same same way. It's just that would be the regular version that people would think of, right? You know, it's kind of like, oh, you know, I'm getting unfairly done by and everyone's probably saying the same thing. Um, but there's this common sort of thing about, you know, uh, I don't get off uh, as well as, you know, the person who's doing it all the time. I mean, that that's at least the mindset for a lot of people going into that space, right? Definitely, definitely. And unfortunately, you know, there are examples of that happening, but there's also examples where there is there is leniency for the other side as well. So you, you can never really pick it. <laughs> and how, how much, what, what's the sort of general ratio that you think in, in your practice you see between, uh, I suppose, blue and white collar um, cases or clients that, that you have uh, where, where do you, where, where, where's the sort of distribution that, that you see? How often are, you know, the, the white collar things come into your office? Um, quite a bit, actually. You'd be surprised. You know, you see on paper, um, you know, what a person is like and that, you know, they've, they're well employed, they've got a long history of stable employment, they're married they've got kids you know everything's going for them but then you know is it that something happens and it all falls apart or it's just bad judgment or other factors um so I guess um look predominantly it is your blue collar crime um but there are quite a few cases where you know they're everyday people like you and I um professional standing and they're just something happens that usually tips them over the edge and they make a very bad decision and that's it. Then they kind of, it's, it's a wake-up call for a lot of people. Um, so it's interesting being, yeah, on on the, the side of that, that you can kind of help them explore that a little bit and um, they, can, they can see the train wreck, so to speak, happening once they're sitting in front of you and they say, I don't know how I didn't see it earlier. Um, but I suppose that's... That's the nature of hindsight, isn't it? <laughs> Are there any sort of de-identified cases that you might be able to share of, I don't know, whether it's fraud or, um, you know, tricky white-collar sort of uh, difficulties that you've seen or an amalgamation yes, um, so we you know, keep it de-identified, of course? Look, I've, I've seen quite a few. You know, there's um, a number of – well – both ends of the spectrum, actually. So on one hand, you've got the fraud that happens, you know, in generally your blue-collar type 
situation. Um, and a lot of them, so one, one example has been uh, someone who I can't even remember the intricacies of how it happened, but has managed to start withdrawing money from a random stranger's account, managed to get all their bank account details, um, went as far as opening up several different accounts in this person's name. Um, and over a period of, I think it was one to two years, withdrew, withdrew a substantial amount of money. Now, this the victim was a very elderly person who had a lot of money, so didn't really notice and wasn't managing their affairs, obviously. Um, like up above half a million? Thereabouts? No. A couple of hundred no, it thousand? Was there, it was thereabouts. It okay. was thereabouts. Um, just so I know what, they, what, 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 what that's looking yeah. like. <laughs> Yeah, but just the um, the level of kind of planning that went into it, and I just I couldn't even get my head around how someone had managed to come up with such a plan. How they'd managed to, you know, you think how does someone obtain all your bank details, your superannuation details, etc. But it it happens. It's scary. So this person that I'm talking about. Um, was more on your blue collar level, as opposed to say, I'm just and they wouldn't have a leg to stand on because clearly you've got an amazing insight. If if you're going out, I mean, I'm this is what I'm just thinking off the cuff. I don't know the case, but yeah. you've got to have some pretty damn good insight about what you're doing and covering your tracks and doing it well, so that you know you're not you're not caught and um, having several accounts so it's spread apart and doesn't go out and flag anything and so on. Like it's pretty detailed. You it know, was very it was it was very detailed. It was detailed. It was very methodical. It was very planned and so on. That then um, certainly no legs to stand on. But then you're looking through the history. Um, and, you know, a lot of kind of grief and loss and trauma and abuse and so forth, which, you know, then led to substance use, et cetera. So there were other factors that kind of came into play, but certainly you couldn't be, you couldn't be um, pleading that you were mentally impaired at the time with such a high level of, you know, detailed, um, yeah, Action behaviors. Um, on the other side of things, impaired maybe that you're gifted. You're you're very gifted. Well, <laughs> if, if you look at it that way, um, very very smart. Some of these people, um, they just use it the wrong way. Um, in terms of white collar, I think um, probably one of not necessarily a fraud case, but um, it was a cold case murder that came up um, or ended up being manslaughter, but. Uh, 20, 20 something years later, and you know this this person had a long stable career history, married, kids, etc., and um, just as a as a young person had gotten involved just in the wrong thing. There was a very impulsive altercation, and um, the person ended up obviously passing away, um, but completely destroyed his life because, you know, he'd built this very um, strong reputation within his community and it was quite a, a close-knit community and after that, you know, everything was destroyed um, by something that he'd done, you know, when he was a teenager and now in his, you know, mid-adulthood. 
Um, so, yeah, very, very different end of the spectrum, I suppose, and you can see just how the actions that you you make, uh, the, the behaviours that you engage in when you're young can have, you know, wider ramifications for your future. And I guess I do see a lot of teenagers and, and young adults in the system as well, and it's, it's often, you know, they're at that kind of crucial point where you can see they've got the opportunity to change and to to make different decisions for their future if only they have the right support and intervention at that time um, and you capture that at the right time. Otherwise, you know, throwing them in jail and throwing away the key is not necessarily always going to be a good rehabilitation prospect and it can actually lead them, I suppose, down that path even more so. And what was your involvement? Do, do you remember what the question you were being asked to make make an opinion on or assess? Was this in the murder case? Yeah, yeah. Um, so at that point in time, it was more looking at his mental state at the at the time, if he could remember, or what circumstances had led had led to this, and whether there was a mental health issue now or at that time. Um, and more looking at the risk of reoffending, um, and I suppose whether whether um, I'm just thinking what was it? It was whether a custody or a community kind of obviously they had to impose some form of a custodial sentence given the nature of the crime, but whether there were any specific kind of um, treatment recommendations that would make it a more beneficial experience, I suppose. So, yeah, more than that must be so complex. And whether anything contributed to it, it must be so complex going back twenty years. Well, how did a person remember twenty years ago? I don't yeah. remember sometimes what I did two days ago. So you're very much it's it's more, I guess, you know, looking at their upbringing, um, whether there was any specific stresses, trauma or anything happening at that time and then from there the flow on, you know, were there any mental health issues that have come about, etc. So, very and, interesting case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and how, how many, um, uh, how many, I'm going to call them opportunities, you might not think so, but how many opportunities have you had to uh, uh, be in front of uh I imagine often the prosecutors um, side. Well, I suppose both because you get cross-examined um, on, on both ends. How often have you sort of had to be partake in the actual court? Um, sort of, um, you know, a lot more than I would have liked to. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, look, I think in the in the forensic psych world, you have to kind of. Um, realize that you're you're going to get called in at some stage and it's going to be multiple times that's just part and parcel of the job and really I kind of I say to people you know if you if you don't want to go to court don't do forensic work um so I've been in court a number of times um I think last year was probably probably the most I've been in court I think I went about oh it seemed like every other month I was going to court. So it was probably a minimum six to six to ten times. Um, just I had a lot of very tricky cases 
um, last year. And a lot of the time it's not necessarily them calling you in to, um, you know, question your your level of risk or anything. It's a lot of wanting kind of to understand things a little bit more, to um, extrapolate on some of the things that you've said in your your testing. And sometimes it's really just because they do need to see whether what you're saying actually stands up in light of the evidence or there's been evidence that's come to light since the report that you weren't aware of that kind of throws things off. So um, it's always daunting going to court, but like anything, the more that you do it, the easier it becomes. And you always still get that little bit of anxiety beforehand. But I think um, I had, I remember a particular case last year, actually, and uh, I didn't get confirmation that I was, required in court that said it might be a possibility so I got a call on the day going where are you you're supposed to be in court right now and I was like I didn't get told I don't know what you're talking about and um I said look I've got other assessments booked in etc I just I can't do it I'm not trying to be difficult the judge ordered that I drop everything and come down they stood down court until that afternoon so I could get there hadn't prepared, hadn't even printed my report. It was one of my most poorly prepared court appearances ever. But for some reason, I think it must have been just the adrenaline kicked in and got in there and, like, I, th- I think, you know, it was probably one of my best um, expert testimonies. So I think sometimes a little bit of anxiety helps performance, <laughs> as we know. It's uh, it's it's very daunting. I I actually had to sit in on, when well, I sit in, I had to be available for one one matter, and and I remember, um, you know, I, I had I was much much younger at the time, um, but uh, I remember both both uh, prosecutor and and, and, and defence, um, basically just grilling me in a room prior, um, and I was absolutely traumatized not in any bad way but I was like horrified at yeah. um because I had no idea I'm just walking in going yeah I wrote I just wrote a basically like a just a letter that I was asked to write you know um and, and then all of a sudden you called me in and I'm like yeah well yeah I'll come in and talk about it um it was horrific it was scary stuff and not because it was like uh uh Awful, but the questioning um, that I had, I'd given no thought to whatsoever. That they could just pull apart, they could pick apart. You know, you're you're um, trying to make these kind of vague statements. You don't know what the hell you. It was awful. It was like clearly, you know, I was um, out of my depth, uh, and it was it, it was it was it was actually a really good experience. Um, uh, thankfully, um, once you come away from it, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> they, they spared me humiliation. Um, probably because they recognize we, we can't put this guy up there, the, 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 this isn't going to be good, um, no. uh, for, for, our, for our purposes. So they dropped me, but um, it was, it was, oh, thank god, pretty, um, yeah, I'll tell you what, I'd, I'd have a better story to tell. <laughs> uh, it, it's harrowing at the best of times even you know like I said when you when you go in fairly often um or you know that it's part and parcel it, it's still it's still awful and like you said they just obviously they're doing their job each side um you know they have an objective but 
yeah, they, they do tend to rip apart your um, your report and go over the things that you wouldn't even think about kind of preparing for. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it makes you a better practitioner to have been able to, to get through it. Um, I have to say, actually, um, I did a family court one last year and that was probably more torture, torture, um, torturous than the criminal law and just um, the proceedings were, yeah, something out of this world. I did not expect, did not yeah. expect it, but. Is the family side more about at least when when we get psychologists involved uh, around parenting, um, sort of you know parenting capacity and clearly you know custody yeah. and you know, child arrangements? Is that predominantly the work that that, that you're talking about yeah. there? Predominantly, yeah, looking at parental capacity, whether there's any mental health issues that are going to um, influence their parenting capabilities, um, custody issues as to, you know, what's in the best interest of the child. Um, and sometimes it's just one parent bringing accusations against another that you kind of have to tease out. Obviously, you're not there to say yes or no whether it happened, but you, you do your best kind of to do a mental health assessment and contribute in whatever way you can to, to the matter. So, yeah, family, family law is a different kettle of fish of its own but still very very interesting talk talk me through a little bit of that side the the the, the family law stuff i know that at least from my dealings um and i only you know often see the one well i only do see the one party talking about their experience of going through court and, Mm -hmm. and going through the whole legal process but there can be a lot of mud throwing during that that um you know process that um you know, at least from 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 some of my clients, mm. they they would suggest that some of the claims are absolutely one hundred percent fabricated. That that none of these things are even remotely, you know, part of their character or anything like that. But there's just enough mud getting thrown enough of the time that their life is hell. They they're, they're constantly, you know, having um, you know, all sorts of services involved because services these days have to basically jump on any report um, and rightly mm. so it's a good thing uh, but their life becomes hell basically to the volume of of you know some people's actions that that um, you know will accuse and, and in their in their view completely 100% fabricate so much mm. Mm. yeah it's, it's very difficult because it does very much you know rely on his word versus her word or you know it's it's a lot of kind of throwing accusations around like you say um and not necessarily having any substantiated evidence for it but the process in which you know while they're getting investigated etc um these family law cases can drag out years and this person you know that you end up you guys obviously end up usually seeing in your um therapeutic clinic you know, it goes on here and the distress and trauma that it it um, causes is is awful. And, you know, at the end of the day, I kind of, the primary concern is the children and I kind of think you're, you're losing, you know, focus of what's in the best interest of your, of your child when you're making up 
not all the, all the time. Obviously, some of the accusations are warranted, um, but a lot of the time in these cases where they do fabricate it, um, you know, it's the kids that are missing out on time with that parent or that you're damaging the relationship with that parent. And, you know, later in life, a lot of the time the child is going to kind of probably be the other side of things. Um, but I guess, like you said, you know, um, we have to take a lot of these accusations and reports seriously and investigate them, um, particularly, you know, in this climate now where, you know, DV and family violence claims are, you know, quite quite prevalent. Um, but I think it's also about, yes, okay, you have to 100% investigate those and, and make sure that there is no risk to either party or the children. But at the same time, I've seen it and a lot of lawyers and, and barristers will also attest to this that, one one side will put in a DV claim or a family violence claim to strengthen their case and then once they get the outcome or so that they want, that suddenly disappears. Um, so it's no longer an issue. Oh, I'll, I'll drop it now. That was just, you know, to strengthen the case. And look, it doesn't always happen like that. Yeah. I, I have seen cases where, you know, you can very clearly see that it's kind of a tactic used by one party to bring into disrepute the character of the other person or to make their side of the case a little bit stronger. Um, and, you know, also uh, I had one particular case where I actually saw the one party for um, a criminal matter and then in, and then they used it in the family law setting and I ended up having to go in and give evidence um, about that party's mental health and how it would affect their parenting, etc. Um, so it can kind of cross over as well, but a lot of it is predominantly, you know, the mental health of the parent and how that's going to influence one way or another the child, the children involved, etc. So it's a very, it's a very messy arena in there. Um, but yeah, well, at the end of the day. The, the 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 idea there is is you know if I throw enough mud at my partner, um, when it comes to the assessment, it'll look as though they're a terrible person. But interestingly, you know, you, you being in that space, you'd see it all the time. And so when there's an AVO that's been put up against someone or a DVO that's been put up against someone, you, you don't necessarily hold that at face value of saying that it's that it's actually evidence for. It just says, yeah, courts are willing to err on the side of caution and say, if you're of saying course. that, we'll just give you, you know, a certain amount of period um, where um, there's, there, there's no contact and here are the, the mm. reasons. It doesn't substantiate that, that um, violence has occurred. Uh, it just no. that one person said so on, you know, Tuesday or whatever it was of the month, um, you went into court, you know, between when it opened at 12 p.m. Um, and you stood in line with the rest of them and you made a claim. And you got it, yep, exactly. You got an, an order against the person. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly that. Sometimes it's just it's a matter of you have to obviously take that into account that that's what you're looking at, but you also have to look at all the other factors. And yeah. sometimes it's about 
having both parents in front of you, not at the same time, um, but interviewing both um, and kind of the cracks start to surface. But a, a lot of the time, I guess, as well, you do get the cases where they genuinely do want, um, you know, just a fair outcome. They're doing it as part of the process. They want to know, you know, who is going to be best to have majority care or access to the children or can we go shared care as part of the part of the um the recommended process as to, you know, their instructing solicitors. So they're doing it more as a case of this is both of us laying it all out on the table. Um, you guys are the professionals will, you know, hand it over to you. How do you personally work on keeping your your personal biases uh, aside? You know, I I know that whenever I take my kids, um, not that I do because my wife usually looks after all of this, but if I'm going to take my children to, you know, a GP or even to the hospital, uh, I will uh, almost always put on um, you know, pants, a shirt, collared shirt, um, you know, belt, you know, nice shoes. So I'm in my professional attire. Uh, and I do that because I know we're working with humans who are biased and uh, that's the best level of service you're going to get. Um, but other people are not going to think that that far ahead, nor are they going to be bothered by it. So people would just say, no, I'm not, not going to be bothered by that. I don't believe that that would be the case or so on and so forth. But I think there's plenty of research that demonstrates you know, human beings are awfully biased. We 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 make stuff up. Um, you know, if I come come into uh, you know my my usual attire, which might be tracksuit pants and a faded t shirt um, and some old shoes that probably should have been replaced two years ago, and I walk in on a Saturday, they will look at me different. I'm I'm I'm, I'm positive to that. How how do you keep your biases away? Where um, you know, in in these matters, uh, how do you kind of work on that on that personal level? That's that's a good question. Um, I think it is very difficult. You know, as as humans, we are set up that way. You know, um, and certainly there are cases that you do, even though you're only seeing the person, you know, once or twice, um, you do kind of have that emotional response to the situation um and I guess in that sense yeah it is difficult to keep your bias out of it but at the same time you've got to look at the case very objectively and remember that your obligation as a forensic psychologist is not to the client in front of you it's not to your the defense you know lawyer or barrister who is also your client um, because they're referring the person to you um you know, you have to remember that your obligation is to the court and you're supposed to provide that impartial um, view as to the situation. And at the end of the day, I mean, I think nobody could 100% guarantee that bias doesn't come into it in some way, shape or form, but it's about being aware of those biases and trying to minimise the emotive quality, I suppose, of your involvement with you know the person in front of you um and certainly i'm a sucker for you know i've had a few um adolescent cases and just the you know the the history that they tell you and you know what they've been through um you know it does it's 
pulls on your heartstrings. And I remember just only this year, actually, I remember sitting, I was seeing, um, uh, I think this this client was maybe 14, 15, um, very, very young. And I was sitting in the lawyer's office to do the assessment. And um, one of the lawyers who I'm I'm good friends with, a few of them in there, and uh, they walked past and they were like, okay afterwards I've never seen you look like that because obviously I was just I was so kind of drawn into the situation but yeah it's very difficult just as you know you guys you know you kind of see the person over and over again and um you you do kind of feel some level of um connection to to what they're saying it, it, it's hard. It gets really complex. I think when we are almost asked to provide an assessment, that's why I asked the question, is because the moment you're asked to provide your assessment, you're almost being asked to advocate. Um, and it's not that we, and I get it, you know, we're, we're always a, you know, the, the, the court is always the client. Um, this is why they make us write those statements to say that we've read it and we understood it and so on. Correct. Um, it's probably a good reminder that it's there so that we, we, we try and be as impartial. Um, but there's so many forces that are against us, you know. If, mm. if I want to keep getting good referrals, and I'm not suggesting this is how we operate, I mean, I think I think it'll be further from the truth for us at least, and I'm sure you guys are the same. But you know, if you want to keep getting referrals, you, you, you there's almost like an expectation to to you know, I'll put those again. You know, the, to do the right thing by us. You know, we're the referrer. We yeah. need it slanted in a particular direction. And I mean, I, I know a good professional will, will say, no, no, I'm doing it as it is because um, that's what's going to stand up in court. Um, but at the same time. There's plenty of professionals out there that might not do so across the board, not not just in psychology, across the board, right? Um, mm. It's a real hard thing because it's got commercial um, uh, leverage potentially. It's, it's certainly got client leverage. I know for, for, for us, you know, you, you feel like you're mm. breaking rapport if, you, if you're not writing in in line i mean i i know yeah. I just by you know the client reports this the client reports that and and i try and keep judgment away from it that, that's for someone else to judge um not for me uh but that that's probably where i find the forensic world so hard is, is to put something down um you know it takes takes a certain you know talent that, that that you know clearly you have it's not an easy thing to do <laughs> No, and I think, look, exactly as you said, you've got to remember that court is the client and at the end of the day, I kind of keep in the back of my head, how am I going to argue this in court if I get called in? Like, I can I can say you're a low risk, Nesh, but really on paper, when I stack everything up against you, are you really and can I argue that in court? And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky I've had, you know, a couple of instances where maybe I did kind of, go one way or the other too low too high um and the lawyers will generally kind of go oh you know that's probably something that you know do you really think you're going to be able to argue that in court and not to to change your opinion but just to make you think um you know is that something that you're comfortable sitting with because I know I've, I've had a couple either way like I said that in court it's you have to yeah you have to be able to back it up so I think it's just about remembering you know that regardless of who the client is you know the defense has the opportunity to 
decide not to use your report at all if they if they don't think it's in the client's best interest. Um, and so at the end of the day, you do your report. I'm more than happy to say someone's high risk um, if I think they are, um, even though it might not be, you know, the what would the lawyer or barrister want you to say. But at the end of the day, like I said, at the end of the day, you've got to be comfortable with your professional judgment and what you're what you're putting across. I think we've got a good system because most of us aren't in a, in a position where there is, you know, a uh, lack of work and therefore there is not that 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 sort of uh, uh, economic pressure. pressure to go out and, and, and do those sorts of things. But I, I can imagine there are situations, you know, where these other factors, I mean, hence why, you know, we've highly regulated and, and all those sorts of things because of those matters, you know, where you know, the the, the, um, the world gets the better of, of us humans, um, but we just try to navigate it as best, best as possible. Of course, yeah. It would be very easy to, to do that, but I think at the end of the day, ethics come into play. Your own, you know, moral compass also hopefully <laughs> plays a part. Tell me a little bit about before I let you go, because I know we've already been, been uh, chatting for a little while. You, you spoke a bit about... Um, you know, migration matters or, you know, refugee mm-hmm. sort of matters, people in detention matters. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, that's obviously uh, a big topic here in Australia, particularly in the last, you know, many years. Uh, and, and, and you know, it's been, well, I think it's a big problem around the world, um, you know, how, mm-hmm. we, how we populate the world um, and how where people are allowed to live and not allowed to live and reasons why they're allowed to move and so on. Um, what are the sorts of cases that have come to you that you've worked on and, you know, what, what, what have you been asked to, to, I suppose, assess or provide opinion on? Yeah, I suppose um, a lot of the, the immigration cases, it's looking at either when they're, when they're um, coming in or they've been here for a while and they're going for, you know, their permanent residency um, or if they've been on, say, a spousal visa and the relationship has ended, they're now trying to get their own um, you know, visa as well, looking at their mental health issues, whether there's anything from their history, criminal history, et cetera, from overseas that's potentially going to be a risk to them you know, in our community, whether going back to their own country is in itself um, a risk to them. Um, I remember having a, a case where, you know, this person, if they returned to their country that they'd fled from, it was essentially like a suicide mission. Um, so it, it's more kind of, yeah, looking at the psychological factors involved and risk factors involved in either them them staying here or returning back home. Um, and in the case of kind of asylum seekers, um, detention centres, et cetera, more how has their experience there contributed to any mental health issues? What What is their stay there? Because obviously a lot of them are there for many years, as we know. Um, what are the conditions there? How does that affect them? And what is the impact of that longer term as well? Um on their their health, their quality of life, their employment, etc., their families. So there's quite a range of things that you kind of need to to look at in those situations and circumstances as well. So once again, a really hard space in terms of I'm I'm assuming there'd be lots of uh, 
people who are desperate to to remain in Australia, an incredible, incredible place. And there, there would be so many true stories about, you know, persecution if someone did return. And I imagine there's also, you know, true stories of um, that wouldn't be the case. And, and all we've got to rely on, um, and hopefully migration's got more to rely on, but uh, all, all you and I would have to rely on, I'm assuming is, is one's words. Uh, I, I don't know if you have more means in, in, in that sense of, of information that you're provided with. Does, does migration provide you with information? Does it come from, you know, loved ones from overseas? How, how do you, like, where does the information come to you in those types of matters? And I know it's always different, but where, where could they come from? I guess, yeah, a lot of it does come from um, their lawyers usually done a lot of the, the background work to ascertain, you know, what their life was like back there, whether they do have any criminal history, um, whether there was any mental health contact back home as well um, or while they've been here. So you do kind of get a lot of that information from the solicitors. Um Collateral from yeah, family, friends, whether they're here or overseas. Um, and interestingly, I've had a few cases where they've committed crimes while they've been here, and then as part of that, um, they're then put in detention because there's a certain um, period of time. If you're in detention for a certain period, you automatically then are your, your visa is cancelled and you go back home. Um, but then they're placed in detention until that can happen. And so that can also be quite um, daunting. Um, so there's also kind of doing reports on the impact of, you know, if this person has to um, spend a period of time in detention, either while they're waiting to go back or um, potentially waiting to be sentenced, etc. how is that then going to affect them? That kind of not knowing and being in limbo. So, yeah. And, yeah, so I guess in, in that case, you know, a lot of the information does come from the lawyers and they've done a lot of that back, back leg for you. I imagine detention is a lot worse than jail because the uncertainty. I think the, at least in jail, you've got a number to, to work with. You know, it's X um, and if I d- do what I'm asked, you know, my parole is at Y and, and I'll, you know, they're, they're fairly firm in my understanding, yeah, numbers. Um, but in detention, you know, it's kind of like, well, how long, how long are you here for? I don't know. Don't know. You know where, where are you going? I don't know. You know, are you going to be staying here or are you going to be asked to leave? I don't know. God, like that that would be absolutely – I mean, I, I could probably answer all the questions for, for migration today. Um, mm. The answer, it's not going to be good to keep anyone in detention uh, without them no. having an answer. It's awful. Um, no, you know, it's, it's that anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously the conditions that they're exposed to in there and – you know, I've, I've heard cases where they say they do have people who you know, are obviously so distressed in there that they're, they're trying to take their own life or, you know, it's just it's awful. Um, so all of that obviously then exposes them to further trauma that they've already been through a lot of them, um, having come here in the first place to escape trauma. So it, yeah, it can be very re-triggering and re-traumatising. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow, there's so many uh, different avenues in the forensic world. Uh, is is, yeah. is there um, is there an opportunity I can give you a plug? I know that you're in Melbourne. Um, it's, uh, oh, I've, I've forgotten your practice's name, but no one's going to forget right. Ferrari. Um, you're not going to forget well, that one. <laughs> it's a great name. Um, so it's Ferrari Consulting Group. We, we have four psychologists on board at the moment and growing. Um, but, yeah, cover um, all different areas of law, as we've discussed. Um, offering forensic services and we do actually cover not only Melbourne, Victoria, but we do interstate work as well, Queensland a lot and New South Wales. Um, so, yeah, thank wonderful. you for having me on the show. It's been wonderful talking to you and giving a little bit of insight, hopefully, into the life of a um, forensic psychologist. Always interesting. And before I let you go, how is it best for people to contact you through the website? Is there a particular email? What's the best way if they they yeah. want to um, engage you or, or find out more? So if you go to our website, which is ferrariconsultinggroup.com, there's no .au, just .com, um, and jump on there. It's got all our con- contact information, but generally um, email is the best because we're back and forth in assessments, as, as everyone is. Um, Yes, yeah, but jump on our website. It's got lots of information on there. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I know that uh, before we started this, you said that uh, the day is, is mainly assessments and report writing, so I better better let you go to it. And uh, thanks yeah, again for, for coming right. on and, and giving us more more insight in, in, you know, all the different avenues that I think forensic uh, uh, offers, but I certainly won't be jumping across any time soon. So. <laughs> Don't quit your day job. Thanks so much, Ness. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, If you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.